Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. Insight is the beginning of transformation, not the end. Meditation is the practice of understanding the dynamics of individual suffering. To listen entails a fundamental letting go of self-centeredness. We have to be willing to put down our thoughts, views, and feelings temporarily to truly listen. So those are the words of Oren J. Soffer, who's my guest today. Uh, Oren is a mindfulness and nonviolent communication teacher. He teaches uh, Buddhist meditation, mindfulness, and nonviolent communication nationally. He's a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, and he holds a degree in comparative religion from Columbia University and is the author of Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication, and the co-author of Teaching Mindfulness to Empower Adolescents. Oren is the co-founder of Mindful Healthcare and the founder of Next Step Dharma, an innovative online program that helps meditators integrate their retreat experiences into their daily life. So Oren and I are going to talk about a few things. Uh, We really mostly focus on what nonviolent communication is, how to deploy it, how to use it, how it can show up in our Uh, current everyday lives, online, offline, in relationships, in our partnerships with our coworkers and our colleagues and our friends. Uh, So this is a really interesting conversation because I haven't gone down this path before. So this is a good opportunity to learn about what nonviolent communication is and how we can practice it on a daily basis to better understand the people around us. Uh, I like to think nonviolent communication is really a, a modality of communicating through deeper listening, through deeper understanding. That's really what I got out of this. It wasn't so much about, you know, not communicating aggressively, uh, which would sort of, you know, the name would sort of imply, but more so it's a more modality and a framework for us to be able to communicate more effectively with a deeper layer of understanding and a deeper consciousness within our own listening. So it's a very interesting episode. I hope you enjoy. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. We're on Spotify now. Uh, We have a lot of people tuning in on Spotify these days. Uh, But if you are still tuning in through iTunes, through Apple, whatever uh, platform you're tuning into us on, please leave a rating and review. It goes a long way to uh, moving us up in the ranks. And uh, don't forget to man it forward. Share with just one person this week if you enjoyed this episode and uh, appreciate you sharing this podcast as we have been growing rapidly over the past couple of months. And uh, I really appreciate all the support for everyone that's tuning in all over the world. All right. Without any further delay, please welcome Oren J. Soffer. Thanks, Connor. Happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. Happy to have you here. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, my producer really like loves your work. And then mm. he sent me a bunch of your stuff and I started going down the rabbit hole and... <laughs> I was like, yep, this is going to be a good conversation, especially right now. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Um, let's let's kick things off with the question, uh, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life. Sure. So Connor gave me a heads up about two minutes ago <laughs> for I the like question. To, I like to surprise all my, so, all my guests. I don't tell anybody beforehand and they're all like, hey, this is a big question. <laughs> no, it's a good one. It's a good one. So when I got quiet and um, just listened inside, actually two moments came to mind that are connected that are, you know, maybe about a year apart in my life. And that was when I was 
<laughs> and then, of course, all the other ones flood in, all the other moments. But I'll just share these two. So um, early 20s, uh, actually, no, younger. I was 18, the first one, probably 18, um, sitting on a park bench in New York City near uh, Morningside Park on the Upper West Side uh, in college, uh, in tears, uh, really distraught. Uh, the woman I was dating at the time, very close friend, we had ended our relationship. And this was after a series of really just painful, difficult um, relational situations. Uh, some of the f guys I'd been friends with that year in college uh, stopped talking to me suddenly, which was really hard. Um, my parents were getting divorced. Uh, so just kind of a, a cluster of things. And, and uh, kind of in this one moment, I was sitting on this park bench with this friend, just weeping, just weeping. And uh, she turned to me and she said, it's okay. This is change. It's part of being, you know, it's part of life. It's, and, and there was something about the intensity of the pain I was in and her wisdom of just like, it's okay. This is change that really went in. And then the other moment that comes to mind that is connected to that one, it was, it was the pain of that year of my life that, that really, um, set me seeking in a different way. And I ended up taking um, some time off. I did a study abroad program in India, a Buddhist studies program, and took some time off after that. And the very first night at the monastery in this town called Bodhgaya, India, which is the town that now marks the site where the Buddha was originally, was, was enlightened uh, 2,600 years ago, the very first night uh, there at the monastery uh, feeling like, what is going on? I mean, India is just a whirlwind of difference in so many different, so many ways for someone who's grown up in the West. It's just an assault on the senses. Before I left, I remember this one friend of mine saying, if LSD is a postcard, India is the landscape. <laughs> so it's just very, so, you know, 20 years old, what's going on? Why am I here? And listening to the two meditation teachers, one uh, Sri Lankan man and another uh, Indian man, talk about the teachings of Buddhism and, and feeling this sense of homecoming and a, and a clarity of all of the different moments and challenges and questions of my life coming together with a sense of, oh, 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 this is why I'm here. And really like discovering a calling. And those two are kind of like bookends of the, 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 the pain kind of really setting me out on a journey and, and discovering like, okay, like I'm pointed in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, I, I appreciate you sharing those moments. I feel like they're so relatable for a lot of, for a lot of people while the situations and context might look, you know, wildly different. And you know, I think it's something where for many of us, as we go through these experiences and we find ourselves heartbroken or down, or we can, in those moments, forget that our pain is part of the path. You know, our pain is a part of our purpose. Our pain is, is you know, an indicator of something. And we're very pain averse in some ways <laughs> and avoidant in Western culture, right? Yeah. It's like we've, we've tried to create a societal understanding of how we operate as human beings by with this obsession with feel goodness 
Yeah. You know, like with the, with the addiction to needing, needing to be happy and, and providing that happiness with McDonald's and Disney and, you know, all of these, um, material goods. And so, um, so I'm, I'm curious for you, like, was part of that, what led you into nonviolent communication and, and having that be a part of your work or where did nonviolent communication start to come into the mix? Sure. Yeah. I'll just add just to kind of riff off what you were just saying, Connor, that, uh, you know, that avoidance of pain obviously is like goes even deeper than our culture. It's biological, right? As that's like millions of years of evolution. So all of us, as we encounter these hard places in our life are up against not just our socialization and cultural conditioning, but this very deeply wired uh, avoidance, the pleasure pain principle. Um, so uh, nonviolent communication, this, um, communication technique, which is really a much deeper practice of awareness and transformation of our relationship to ourselves and to life. Um, that modality came into my life about five or six years later when I started um, realizing that there were some gaps that I was actually, um, in some ways, the meditation practice was going great and I was really connecting with things. And in other ways, I was still struggling a lot in my life and feeling stuck in a lot of anger and having arguments with people. And I wasn't finding that the meditation was was translating into the relationships and conversations and actions of my life. And that was when I came across Dr. Rosenberg's work, The Practice of Nonviolent Communication, and found within that this very pragmatic bridge to translate a lot of the internal values and work that I was doing into my conversations and relationships. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that sounds, it sounds wonderful. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on was to dive into this concept. And I think in your book, you had such a, I think it was in the very beginning of uh, say what you mean. There's a great quote by Desmond Tutu in the, in your first chapter. And it says language is very powerful. Language does not uh, just describe reality. Language creates the reality it describes. Yeah, and I feel like that's why nonviolent communication is so important. Is that it helps us to sort of shift that reality that shifts our perspective of how we're seeing things. So maybe what we can do just to give some context before we broaden the conversation about you know the uh, how to apply nonviolent communication. Let's dig into what it actually is. What are some of the core pieces or principles? And and just sort of give the listener some context for what nonviolent communication is from a structural standpoint, and and then we'll sort of dig in from there. Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, so the first thing is is nonviolent communication. You said from a structural standpoint, and I would I would want to. So NVC has a very clear structure and form, but that actually is one of its greatest liabilities because it tends to um, lead to people speaking in formulaic and robotic ways. And so I actually try to shy away from the form in talking about and teaching NVC as it's known for short. So the first thing is, what is this nonviolent thing? Does that mean my communication is violent? Well, yes and no. So it's called nonviolent communication for two reasons, as far as I understand. One, Dr. Rosenberg very clearly and explicitly 
wanted to place it in the tradition of Kingian and Gandhian nonviolence because he saw it not just as a tool for personal transformation or better relationships, but actually a tool for social change. Again, because he understood at a very profound level the same insight that you just shared from Desmond Tutu that our language plays a large role in creating our world and perpetuating and structuring the systems and institutions of our society. And if we want to change the institutions and the systems of our society, we also have to change our thinking. And to change our thinking, that also means changing our perceptions, how we are viewing the world. So this goes very deep into the the ways that we perceive and experience life. So he also understood the connection between our thoughts and our words and our willingness to use violence as a strategy to achieve our ends. And when we think and speak in certain ways, violence seems like a really logical strategy. When you're evil and bad, when you cause my pain and it's your fault, then it makes sense to want to punish you or to use violence. When I'm able to stay connected to our shared humanity, to actually see even the people who I disagree with, the people who I would like to have influence on to change the way they're behaving, whether it's in my personal life or in society, when I'm able to see their humanity, even as I disagree with their actions, then my approach to engaging will be very different. I won't see violence as a viable strategy. So for these two reasons, he called it nonviolent communication. So what is it? One of the core principles, which is deeper than NVC, this is part of humanistic psychology, people like Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, and others, is that part of what makes us human is that fundamentally we all want to be happy, and that part of being happy for us means being satisfied, and that this satisfaction that we long for constellates around certain universal things. In humanistic psychology and NVC, these are referred to with a very unfortunate term, which is the term of needs, human needs. Why do I say unfortunate? Well, what comes to mind for most of us when we hear the word need? We think think needy. Yeah, Yeah, needy, (laughs) demanding, get me away from that. I feel weak. I feel vulnerable. I'm dependent. I don't want that. So that's not what we mean. Those are the Those are the kind of cultural accretions and associations with something that's actually very core to who we are. Like we are interdependent creatures. We are social creatures. We have physiological basic needs. We have relational needs for belonging, community, play, touch, love, empathy, understanding. And and we have deeper needs, more spiritual needs, higher needs for meaning, purpose, uh, contribution, and so forth. So One of the central principles behind this practice is that, one, all of our actions, all of our behaviors, all of our choices can be seen and understood as an attempt to meet or satisfy these underlying needs. And the way Dr. Rosenberg used to put it very succinctly is everything we do, we do to meet a need. Mm. And we can talk about that a little bit more on how transformative and powerful just that one concept is. The other core principles are that not only is everything we're doing, we're doing to meet a need, but that those needs are universal, they're shared, and that all of our needs matter. All of our needs internally, so it's not just that my needs for meaning and purpose matter, but my needs for connection matter, and my needs for belonging matter. All of our needs matter internally and collectively, that the needs that other people who I see as different than than myself their needs for belonging and dignity and 
safety matter just as much as mine do. And when we start to look at those needs through a historical lens, when we look at it and understand the different histories that different groups of people have in our society or in our planet, um, and the different access people have had to resources to meet their needs, we begin to understand not only that all needs matter, but that some of our needs have been met more consistently than others based on the forces of uh, oppression and in society. So these are some of the core principles. And then what Dr. Rosenberg found was that how do we start to hear each other? How can we really listen and understand what's in someone's heart, even when we disagree with them? How can we express ourselves in a way that's open, clear, powerful, honest, and non-blaming, and really get what's in our heart, what we care most about? to someone else? How can we get that message across? Well, what he found was that we can transform the ways we think and speak by focusing our attention on specific areas. And this is where the form, the format, the template for nonviolent communication comes in. And I really like to think of this as a, an awareness practice that's about transforming our internal experience so that we can get clearer about what's happening for us, and so that we have a different way of understanding and listening to others, not so much as a script for what to say, like, okay, step one, say what happened, observe. Like, that doesn't really work in real life. So what is this template? What is this, what is this form, formula for understanding what's happening in a situation? So the first thing he says is, all right, what happened? What's going on? Like, what actually happened? Not what you think happened, not the, uh, you know, judgments you have about what happened or why it shouldn't have happened another way. No, what actually happened? And uh, Krishnamurti, the great Indian uh, philosopher and uh, teacher, author, said, the ability to observe without evaluating is one of the most powerful uh, capacities that we have as human beings. And so this is this first step is, can I just observe what's actually happened? And just that can be freeing to start to separate all the extra junk we're adding on about why it happened and what their motivation was and it shouldn't have happened, and, but just know what happened. So this is about making observations. Then we say, okay, how do I feel about it? There's some emotions there. What's actually going on inside? And again, not so much the stories we're telling about what happened. Like, you attacked me and I feel betrayed. I feel betrayed. What does that mean? That means I'm telling myself that you betrayed me. That's a story. That's a judgment. Now, clearly, I've got some emotions. If I, if I feel betrayed, we all know that there's some emotions going on. But do I feel angry? Do I feel deeply hurt? Do I feel bereft? Do I feel uh, lost and scared? Do I feel confused? Right? There's a whole range of feelings that might be happening associated with that perception, that meaning we place on the experience of betrayed, ignored, attacked. So we want to get to what our actual experience is. Where is the life energy moving in you? And identify and feel what are the emotions that are present. All right, so we've got to observe what happened, connect with your feelings. Now, the next thing is this key step, which is why. Why are we feeling that way? We, we don't feel things unless we care about something. If we didn't care about something, we wouldn't have any emotions about it. So this is where the human needs comes in. All of our feelings and emotions are information that point back to something that matters to us. So what matters? 
what matters to me in this situation? What's actually important underneath the details, underneath what I want to have happened, where I want this to go? We talk about differentiating between the strategies, which are the specifics of what we would hope for, to get to what really matters. So why is this important? What matters to me? And then the fourth and final uh, place to focus your attention and consider is, where do we go from here? What's next? And not just like, oh, I want you to do this for me. Not just the solution we think will solve the problem, actually. That's way, way down the line. Often we put the cart before the horse, we jump, we jump the gun, and we're like, okay, we'll just fix it and do this. No, no, no. In the actual conversation, What's the one thing that would be helpful right here and now that this person could do or say that you would like to know or hear back? So we want to kind of move just one step at a time to help build understanding in the conversation. So these four elements of observation, feeling, need, and the last one is called a request. A request is just an idea. It's just a suggestion like, well, what if we did this? What if you told me more about what was going on for you when that happened or you know, what if you just told me, like, can you get why I would feel so confused and hurt? Like, does that make sense to you? That'd be really meaningful for me to know. That's the, tr- that's the template for starting to train ourselves to have more meaningful conversations that comes from nonviolent communication. Yeah, wonderful. I, pr- I appreciate you laying out the framework and some of the important pieces as you were talking about the sort of first pillar or principle or, you know, whatever um, sort of label we want to put on that. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of uh, one of my favorite sort of spiritual teachers, a man named Anthony DeMello. Um, he's a Jesuit priest. And he said, we, we don't need to do things differently. We need to see things differently first in order for change to occur. And that's always stuck with me because I think what you're saying here that's so important about nonviolent communication is that we actually uh, need to be able to take an objective view sometimes on the circumstances, especially in like a relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like when <laughs> when conflict comes up with a partner or a business partner or a colleague or a family member, we can often have our uh, projections put onto what's happening, right? And we we sort of muddy the waters yeah. with with our, you know, you made me feel this way, or when you said that, you know, and that can be very challenging. And I think that's where prompts like, you know, the story I'm telling myself about this is because we can kind of separate our narrative, our internal dialogue and what we're making the situation mean from the actual situation. And that can be quite potent. Yeah. And and then taking that, taking that kind of objective viewpoint and this capacity to be aware of what we're adding, the story, and then alongside that, owning the subjective, really being willing to take responsibility for, so, okay, I'm telling myself this story that, you know, you don't care about me and you're just out to advance your own agenda here. And the reason that matters to me now, I want to take responsibility for like, you know, what's important to me? Like, I really want our relationship to be founded on a, a, a shared commitment to um, doing what's best for the business. Or, you know, I want our partnership, uh, our marriage, our, you know, romance to be about um, both of us caring about each other, not just, you know, satisfying our own desires. So we can take that objective view as a way of 
creating a shared understanding of what the issues are we're talking about and then and then still alongside that not need to uh, reject or leave aside what actually matters to us and when we talk about what's important to us by owning our feelings and our needs saying you know like here's how i feel and here's why because this is important to me there's less to argue about because i'm actually just speaking my own truth mm. Yeah, that's such a such a good reminder. I, I'm curious for you, like I think one of the things that I'd like to maybe just touch on here before we move forward is what sort of constitutes as, you know, quote unquote violent communication. Oh. Because I think we're we're living in this time of I mean, it's such a interesting time from a narrative standpoint, you know, mm. where you see what's being justified as okay in dialogue, right? This sort of hate-fueled, attack-oriented uh, nature of communication on one side, and then the sort of delete, cancel culture, you're not allowed to speak or say certain things on the other side. And so there's this huge infringement on how we are supposed to or allowed to communicate in our cultural forums. Mm. But I think that that's starting to seep into our relational forums as well. Like I see a lot of that communication style seeping into uh, to be into our, just into our family conversations. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, I can, I can list off dozens of people whose families are, are being very much sort of like tugged at and torn apart right now because of the modality and the difference in communication that we have right now. Mm. So I'm curious for you, like what constitutes as violent communication? Because this is a very, I think, touchy subject in some ways in our, in our current culture. That's a great question, Connor. Thanks. Um, I mean, I just, I want to just like honor the intensity and complexity of the moment we're in historically, right? And, and you, you touched on, right, like a whole bunch of different aspects of this question of from um, hate mongering, fear mongering, um, implied within that, which you didn't mention explicitly, like xenophobia, dog whistle racism, uh, that whole dimension of things. And you mentioned cancel culture and the complexity around this debate of what is actually um, harmful speech versus what is free speech. When When is calling someone out or calling someone to accountability coming from a place of uh, when is that useful and furthering the project of equity and justice and and uh, society founded upon, you know, respect for all? And when is it coming from reactivity and hate and actually not furthering that project? These are complex questions. Um, so what is violent communication? I think we need to step back from that and actually ask the question, what is violence? And this is a question that that I'm very interested in, and I can share a few different perspectives, a few definitions that I've found really helpful. So usually we think of violence, we think of, okay, well, that means physical harm. That's one of the most basic definitions of violence. But I think obviously there's a lot more there, right? What is verbal abuse? What is emotional abuse? Like there are other forms, what is psychic violence, right? There's this gaslighting. So I mean, there's all these other ways that we experience harm beyond the physical as human beings. So one um, 
philosopher and figure in peace and conflict studies, Johann Galtung, his definition of violence, which I really like, is he says, violence is any avoidable impairment of fundamental human needs. Now that really broadens it, right? Any avoidable impairment of fundamental human needs. So poverty is a form of violence. Malnutrition is a form, and hunger are forms of violence, right? I would go so far as to say treating someone verbally without respect and dignity is a form of violence because that's avoidable. We, you know, I want everyone to be treated with respect and dignity. Um, so that's that's one definition. Another definition. Um, uh, colleague of mine, Kazuhaga, who wrote a book called Healing Resistance, which is about Kingian nonviolence, has a, a number of definitions in there. Uh, he talks about leading a workshop and one young woman saying, violence hurts. And I really like the simplicity of that and the way that it just kind of cuts through all, you know, everything. It's just like, yeah, we know it when we feel it, when we see it. Violence hurts. Marshall Rosenberg used to talk about violence, not so much as a definition of violence, but a way of understanding the manifestation of violence in human relationships and society. He said, all violence is a tragic expression of our unmet needs. Mm. And this is, again, going back to that core principle or perspective at the root of NVC and humanistic psychology, everything we do, we do to meet a need. So the violence, can't, even violence, can be understood as reaching for some need when our needs aren't met and we lash out because we are trying to meet those needs or express our pain. So what is violent communication? You know, I would, I would say for me, based on my own understanding and to some degree my own personal views and values, violent communication is, is any form of communication that either incites or justifies physical violence and any form of communication that does not treat other human beings with dignity and respect. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that what's interesting about the current time that we are in is there's a lot of communication, a lot of talk about dignity, about a sort of return to this idea, idea or ideological concept of, you know, I'm going to use America as an example, because that's sort of like in the limelight right now, of freedom, right? The freedom to say whatever we want, the freedom to do whatever we want, the freedom, mm -hmm. freedom of speech. And so, you know, I think what's interesting is that there are these there are these counterpoints to this culturally that seem to be coming up right now, where people are almost like in on one hand fighting for their right to have violent communication, mm -hmm. and then on the on the other end of the spectrum, there's also uh, there's also this sort of like when violent communication is used, this shaming tactic that seems to be deployed in some some mm. areas not all areas mm. but i'm curious for you like would you and I, i've actually never thought about this before this moment but i'm curious if you would consider something like cancel culture a form of violent communication or like is that like where does that kind of fall in because it because yeah. on on the one hand we have very clear violent communication right hate speech and mm -hmm. attacking people online or you know when we get into conflict in our partnership we 
can go down that rabbit hole of calling people names or yelling aggressively or, you know, imploding and shutting down for days and not not talking to them. But on the other hand, we have a very different modality. And so I'm, I'm curious for you yeah. uh, where that falls. And then I do want to I do want to take a little bit of a left turn to something else here. But. Sure. Well, so just a couple things that come to mind first. It's like I want to I want to be really careful about labeling and like, you you know, what's the utility? What's the purpose of determining or saying, oh, this is violent communication or this isn't violent communication? Because that itself can start to be used as a bludgeon. Mm -hmm. You're doing it wrong. You're, you know, like, where does that get us? Right. So, you know, the whole whole thrust of nonviolent communication is to begin to be aware of the tendency our minds have to habitually, reflexively, and reactively prejudge things and categorize them as a way of trying to control life. So when I see something that strikes me as, quote, violent communication, what's actually happening for me? I feel scared. I feel frustrated. I feel helpless and hopeless. Why? Like, I so want us as a society to be able to have the conversations that are essential for our survival as a species, let alone as a democracy, let alone as a pluralistic, diverse society. It's like I deeply long for the support and the structure to enable the free exchange of ideas and values that will further the project of human thriving and living in harmony with the other life on the planet. Now, for me, being conscious of my experience in that way is much more empowering and and much le- much more likely to lead to connection than living in the perception of that's violent communication. Mm. So, so even having the conversation about what is and isn't violent communication, I'm wanting to reframe that in terms of my own needs. What is it, what matters to me and what is it that I'm longing for? So building from that, when I see certain kinds of cancel culture, you know, the the sort of like, and I want to tread lightly here for a few reasons, um, because not because I'm afraid of being called out. I'm happy to be called out. I consider it a, 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 an invitation to learn and to grow. And I think when it's done right at its best, that's what it is. It's coming from love. It might be hard to hear. It might be painful. And it's coming from like, hey, you're better than that. You know, I, I want you to fulfill your potential and actually rise to the occasion here beyond what I see you doing as, and, and that I, I see that coming from unconsciousness and leading to harm in a way that I know is better than what, what you're capable of. Not in a patronizing way, but actually in a, in, a, in a way that's like lifting up the goodness in each other. When when done well, I think that's that's where it can come from. When not done well, I see, what I see and what I've been on the receiving end myself as as a white guy. Oh, I, I lost a I lost a thread. I'll finish that sentence and then go back to the treading lightly. Um, when not done well, what I see and what I've been on the receiving end uh, is, um, like you said, shaming conflating someone's behavior with their character. Hmm. You, not just this thing you did, but you yourself are, you are, you know, 
in an inequitable person. You are a racist. Not that was a racist thing to say, that was a racist thing to do, or that is a racist policy or a racist idea you are, but you yourself are this. And the conflation of someone's actions or behaviors or views with who they are, their heart, that's where it starts to actually become harmful because we limit the, the person's possibility for transformation. We refuse to acknowledge and see their humanity and their goodness and even even worse than that in some ways is we truncate the possibility of building coalitions and working together and bringing other people on board to the project for real transformation and growth. Just to finish the other thought that I started before very briefly, what I said was I want to tread lightly here because, you know, I identify as a heterosexual white man, um, I'm Jewish, which is a complex identity in our world for a variety of reasons. The the you know the pain of the Jewish history combined with the present oppression of Palestinians and Israel is you know tragic and complex. But for, for all of the reasons of my own identity, I see myself as someone who has a lot to learn from the the manifestation of cancel culture and the um, the values behind really wanting to elevate voices that have been marginalized. So for that reason, I I want to tread lightly when I critique it or, or call certain things out about it. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And I think I really appreciate the the framework that you put around that you put around nonviolent communication in that specific context, right? Because I think the way you described it can overlay uh, in our intimate relationships so well, right? Where conflict arises and we can very quickly move into a space of justifying attack oriented like character attacking conversations right and I, th I think a lot of couples fall into that trap where when our needs aren't being met and just like you're talking about when those needs aren't being met it can feel very much like a visceral response to mm -hmm. i'm not okay you know something's not right in our relationship something's wrong with you mm -hmm. Right. And, and you're not meeting my needs. And so there must be something wrong with you. And then we can go into some very interesting spaces, right? Using universals, right? You never do this. You always do that. Attacking a person's character, like you were saying. And so how, like, I think you laid out the first step, which was really, really good um, around being able to create some separation, mm -hmm. being able to see things objectively in those moments. Then, then where do we move? Where, where do we move from there? What is, what's the sort of next step in the conversation? Yeah. So maybe a couple things. There's a, so the, what you're speaking to is what I call the blame game, which is this tendency we have, the way we've been conditioned to project our unmet needs out onto others and blame them for the pain that we feel when our needs aren't met. How do we disentangle ourselves from that is a little bit the question I'm hearing you ask because it's complex, right? Because on the one hand, someone else's actions affect us. So if, uh, you know, you brought up intimate relationship, if, you know, uh, I make an agreement with my sweetheart that we are going to uh, have an evening together and then... I renege and, oh, I've got so much work to do. I need to finish this project. That's going to have an impact. You know, she might feel hurt. She might feel angry. She might feel upset, 
right? So how can we take responsibility for the impact that we have without resorting to this narrative of blame and should and shouldn't and always and never and, and so forth? So there's a subtlety here around understanding that our, our actions affect each other and we are each responsible for the emotional reaction that we have because that's about who we are, the meanings that we make about the situation and the needs that may or may not be present. So the way forward in that in the conversation is to recognize like, listen, when we make an agreement that we're going to spend the evening together and then at the last minute you change the plan and say you've got work to do, right? That's the objective part. Then I connect it to like, you know, I just, I feel really frustrated and hurt and a little bit hopeless. Why? Not because you don't care about me and we're never going to get anywhere in this relationship and all that. Don't point it back out to the other person. Why do I feel hopeless and frustrated and hurt? Because of my needs. Because I so, I so want us to have quality time together. And it's so important for me in our relationship to be able to not just have time together, but to follow through and really you know, be there for each other when we say we're going to. Mm. So now I'm talking about my values. I'm talking about what's important to me. And obviously it's not in the words because I can say those same words and be blaming you up and down. Because, you know, it's so important to me that we follow through on the things we say we're going to do, Oren, right? The subtext is, and you didn't, and you should have, and you're never going to get any better at this. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's not about what we say. It's really about how it's living inside of us. Mm. The other key part that we haven't talked about yet in this in this conversation, Connor, which is essential really in being able to have any conversation where we are discussing something that we see differently, where there are emotions that are up, is not just being able to express ourselves clearly in a way that's uh, easy for the other person to hear because it's direct, honest, non-blaming, um, but being able to hear where the other person's coming from hmm. and not take on their blame. So someone, you know, she comes at me and as you know you always do this you know you never follow through this is this is hopeless so first response is to defend myself <laughs> that's not true da, da, da. well that's not really going to be helpful so can i just hear what's going on for this person sounds like you're feeling really frustrated and 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 upset and that you were really looking forward to spending time together this evening and you're pissed because you wanted me to follow through am i you know am i getting it so that's about empathy. It's about being able to sense what's going on for the other person and then to show or offer understanding for it so that the other person feels heard. And that is an essential kind of building block in a conversation. It's, it's the, it's the um, mechanism that helps us build shared meaning and understanding. One phrase, one sentence, one exchange at a time is offering our, not just our listening, but our understanding. Yeah, well, well said, well said. And I feel yeah, I mean, I, I feel like what you're saying is, is so powerful. And I would love, you know, as I was listening to you talk, all I was, I mean, I was really present to how wonderful it would be if we would just teach human beings empathy, you know, in, in school, in conversation, because we, you know, that we, we take things personally, yeah. you know, we're, we're sense, we're sensitive creatures. Uh, and we're often not taught how to deal with those sensitivities and how to not personalize conversations, how to not personalize when somebody else has a different belief or, uh, or experience from us. Mm -hmm. And so, um, okay, well, with that said, I would love to just end our conversation on this idea of 
how individual transformation, how individual change shows up in the context of social change. Because mm. I think right now, again, like you, we've been talking about, it's a very interesting time. There's a lot of social flux. Um, and I'm curious to get your perspective on how how that interplay happens yeah. between individual transformation and social change. Yeah, yeah. Like like we were saying earlier, before we started, you know, that's that's been a question that's very alive for me recently. And having spent the last 20 plus years of my life really focused on individual transformation, healing, spiritual growth, uh, seeing the vast amount of changes our society and planet is going through on so many different levels. Um, uh, the s s philosopher and um, law professor John, John Powell uh, was just listening to a talk of his, and he was kind of naming just very clearly that these different categories of change that are happening of climate change, globalization, technology, the economy, demographics, like huge, huge changes for us as human beings at, at a pace much faster than we are really designed to adapt to. Um, I, I think there are two essential points here. Um, so the fir for me, the first is that individual transformation without an explicit link or framework of social change is, can be very limited and will not necessarily translate to social action. And I think that that's a hard one for people to swallow because the story that I know I've been hearing for years is... Well, if everyone just transforms their unconscious bias, racism, hate, fear, right? If we all just kind of work on ourselves enough, then eventually society will improve. That's not true. I don't think that's going to happen because there are patterns that are set. There are institutions and systems that are self-perpetuating that will continue Number two, we don't have time for that. I mean, like the changes we're experiencing, there are 8 billion people on this planet. If we wait for everyone to wake up, we're all going to be gone. And the conditions for life uh, to support human, <clears throat> human life on the planet will not exist. <clears throat> so I don't think that approach is going to work. <clears throat> so the, the first thing is this sense that individual transformation, I think, needs to happen within a context that understands, defines, and makes connections to social systems and collective history, dynamics, and transformation. So that means that my own liberation and transformation and freedom, do I have a framework that helps me connect that with the larger movement for social change in society and that links the systems of our society back to my own individual experience so that I begin to understand my own struggles and challenges through a lens of collective conditioning and socialization so that I see my patterns of anger as connected to how I've been socialized as a man, that I see, you know, whatever it is, you know, the, the, the um, tendency I have to push forward and dominate in a conversation as connected to male supremacy and white supremacy rather than just like, oh, it's just my personality. No, it's not just my personality. Those patterns were very, very um, 
specifically generated in me due to social forces. So this is the first connection I think that's really important is, is placing individual transformation in a larger context and making those connections in both directions. The second thing is that social trans, so individual transformation without a framework of collective and social healing will um, inevitably, I think, be somewhat stunted and not necessarily translate into action and change. The other direction is that social transformation and work for social change without individual healing is also incomplete and will also fail because, um, one, we won't have the resilience, we'll just burn out. And two, if we don't work on where do institutions and social systems come from, everything originates in the human heart and mind. So we, we, we simultaneously need to transform our own consciousness. We need to heal the trauma that we've lived through. We need to learn tools for communication and emotional uh, resilience and collaboration. We need those individuals, those individual tools and skills, and we need the, the, the transformation on an individual level in our hearts and minds so that we don't end up just reenacting and recreating the same dynamics of oppression and domination that we're seeking to change. We're just, we're just changing the roles in some way. Yeah. 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 Really, really, really well said. I think one of the things that stood out for me there is this idea of individual transformation, not necessarily just being about the self. I think there's a, there's a really great uh, depth psychologist named Francis Weller, and he talks about initiation quite a bit. Mm. And the, the idea that initiation originally, like our original initiations had nothing to do with the individual. Mm. They had everything to do. It wasn't really about improving you. Yeah. Right. And that's the misconception. It wasn't about like initiations, not actually about proving us. It was about the community, right? It's about the betterment of the whole. It's about the betterment of the ecological whole and systems that we're in. And so we initiate ourselves and, and embark back into the community with the sort of like, quote unquote, treasure to actually um, better and progress this the communities that we're in. Yeah. And I think we've sort of missed that in Western culture a little bit, where there is a very sort of selfish nature when it comes to personal growth and personal development and self-actualization. It's a very uh, individualized perspective. It's a very egoic uh, yeah. endeavor, which is quite interesting, right? Cause it's so, sort of yeah. not, not the initial, uh, uh, um, aim, I guess you could say. So I really appreciate your, your perspective on that. I would love to just give you the chance to, to close anything, any other, um, comments on that perspective of individual transformation, mm -hmm. impacting social change. Like where, where do you feel people might be able to start in this because there is this is such a, a huge conversation in many ways and i think a lot of people um with the amount of chaos and transition that we're experiencing culturally and societally and individually right now it's i think a lot of people are overwhelmed yeah. with like well where the yeah. heck do i even start yeah like do so. i start with me do i start with this you know social forum like what do i do I, yeah yeah great great question connor i think there are two things that i would want to leave people with so so one is don't believe the story that says you have to choose between working on yourself and working to, to improve society. That's a false dualism. Do both. 
So do the inner healing work of transforming unconscious racism and unconscious bias and supremacy. Um, you know, and there's so many resources out there today for that, whether it's books or online classes um, or white awareness groups or, you know, just many, many resources. So do that work. Yes. And get involved. Find an organization that you support, volunteer, donate, help get out the vote, be a poll worker, um, find out what's going on in your local community, connect with uh, an issue or a cause that you feel passionate about and give time, energy, resources so that you are directly involved in something that is improving the lives of others. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, try to be gentle with yourself. It's just it's such a hard time. For, for human beings right now on the planet. And uh, the more compassion and kindness we can have with ourselves, um, the easier of a ride it's going to be. Yeah, well, well said, well said. We seem to be in the age of crisis, the age of chaos, and, uh, and compassion is, is definitely required. Uh, it, could, it could help a, just a little bit of an infusion, I think, <laughs> of compassion starting with ourselves and then the, you know, the people that we come into contact with online, I feel would go a long way. So, yeah. um, listen, Oren, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me, um, for the people that are out there that are, uh, wanting to learn a little bit more about your work, where can, where's the best place for them to, to find you? Yeah. Uh, best place to find me is at my website, orinjsofer.com. Uh, tons of articles and free resources. If you want to stay in touch, you could join my email list and you get a free guided meditation series and an ebook. Uh, I'm also on social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at orinjsofer, and I post regularly there. Wonderful. Yeah. And if you're wanting to learn more about nonviolent communication, uh, you can check out Oren's book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication. Um, we have all these uh, links in the show notes for you to check out. So thank you very much for, again, for joining me. Uh, for everyone that's out there, if you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to share this episode with just one person. 